0: Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to My Happy Place, my podcast where I self medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 79. Spices. I'm not really a food guy. When I was compiling this list, I thought about including a favorite food, but I didn't feel like it. I have included bacon, (laughs) duh, and two hamburgers and a small fries. I have spoken about the creative activity of making food, but no favorite meals. I like good food, but eating often feels like a displacement activity as you heard previously. A chore, a necessary evil that prohibits me from doing my creative work. I rarely eat breakfast. Lunch is just an invention of the lazy bourgeoisie. And yeah, well, dinner can be nice. But then I realized I have to absolutely include spices. Humans are weird. Sure, I get it that making food taste better is timeless and universal. But that humans started engaging in the self-flagellation of their mouths and then kept doing it, (laughs) that's just hilarious. Imagine the first human to take a bite of a super hot chili pepper and then actually recommend it to the others in the tribe. But it's all pretty basic, our love of spicy food. The hot spice hurts us, it causes us pain. A pain signal is sent by the nerves that transmit touch and temperature sensations. The substance, capsiacin, In foods seasoned with chili causes a sensation of pain and heat. When you see hot or spicy on a menu, remember, it's not a taste, it's an effect. Capsiacin triggers the body to think it's in danger. In response, the body releases endorphins and dopamine, which give us pleasure. This is the body's way of trying to eliminate the threat that it feels when we eat spicy food. Dr. Paul Rosen, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, argues that people use spicy foods as a type of constrained risk or benign masochism. Okay, relax. But I have learned that you should choose your courses at a spicy restaurant carefully. You have to start with something less spicy and then work your way up to really spicy. If you start hot, the last course will not taste as good. It will disappoint. Start soft and endorphins and dopamine are released and then more is released as you increase the intensity through the meal. And sure, if you eat a lot of spicy food, your tolerance grows and you keep seeking out hotter spices. There are health benefits to eating spicy food. Polyphenols found in Indian curry spices such as turmeric or cinnamon may positively affect the gut microbiome. No one knows exactly when humans started to torture themselves with spice. Scientists have found clear evidence that spices were intentionally added to food in northern Europe around 6,100 years ago, the earliest known evidence of spiced food in Europe and perhaps anywhere in the world. Residues scraped from the inside of 6,000-year-old pots found in Denmark showed that they were used to cook meat and fish that was seasoned with a peppery, mustard-like spice. It had little nutritional value, so it was clear it was added to improve the taste. This is kind of amusing to me because peak spice in Denmark these days is horseradish, maybe some garlic, and many Danes gasp for breath at marginal levels of spice. Me, I like it hot. I have repeated countless times, hey, I'd like to have that meal as hot as you like it when talking to a server in a Thai or Indian restaurant. Here in Denmark, they often argue with me. Oh, no, 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 that's too spicy for you. But then I insist. (laughs) Once a chef stuck her head out from the kitchen to see if I was actually eating the fiery meal I ordered. I was. 6,100 years ago, that was long before Europeans sailed to Asia and the spice trade began. There were limited plants that grew in Europe with fire in their veins. Asia changed all that. What a culinary cultural explosion that must have been when ships started arriving from the east with wild exotic spices. The people are so sweet in Asia. They will try to warn this white guy that something is spicy. They're reluctant to give it to you. Even a bowl of spicy nuts at a hotel bar in Bangkok. Oh, please, sir, please be careful. It's very, very spicy. Then they're amazed that I don't drop dead when I eat it. I was in a huge market in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And there was a booth selling only hot sauces. That's it. And many I had never seen before. I wanted to take a couple home. My friend translated for me and asked if I could taste one in particular. The man looked at me all worried and just said in Portuguese like, to my friend, but he's a gringo. I explained, hey, man, I like spicy food. It's going to be okay. He was not at all thrilled about this. I got one tiny drop on the back of my hand. I whipped up saliva in my mouth and licked it off. It was hot. Then it exploded in my head. I knew I couldn't fail with these two Brazilians watching me, one with amusement and the other in horror. Beads of sweat burst from my forehead, but I played it cool. It was really hot, man, but also totally doable. At the end of it, the man selling the sauces, hmm, he nodded in respect. A good day for cross-continental diplomacy. I bought that hot sauce, and it was wild how just two drops of it, In a huge pot of chili was enough to light it up like a bushfire. Indian food blows my mind. The complexity of how they combine spices. I recall some scientific study that tried to determine how the spices worked together and how Indians ended up through history mixing them to perfection. Mexico. I have to mention Mexico. Firstly, it's so interesting that Mexican cuisine can be spicy, but in most other countries in Central and South America, the food is just pretty bland on average. Maybe you've answered the question before about, hey, listen up, what would you choose as your last meal if you will die tomorrow? It's a fun question. I'd probably start with sushi and then have a nice big burger. But here's a more interesting question. If you were only allowed to eat one cuisine every day for the rest of your life, what would you choose? It's one of those questions I ask in social settings. Many people seem to go with French or Italian, and they blurt it out right off the bat the people who are partial to spice, they think a little bit more about it because it gets more complicated. The mouth battle between Thai, Indian, and Mexican begins. This is also my final three to choose from. In these conversations with people about the question, a lot of great points show up. I've heard so many. Oh, you know, Indian though, right? It has lots of vegetarian options. So for the rest of your life, you have that balance. Oh, I know, but like so much Indian food is also just boiled into stews. I don't want to eat stews for the rest of my life. And Thai, Thai has lots of fresh vegetables. Oh, but sure, but there's more spices in India. Mexican, oh, too much corn. Yeah, but great seafood and so on. Lots of discussion. Okay, let me make my own decision here. I had narrowed it down to Mexican and Thai. I considered squeezing Lebanese into the final four, but that would overcomplicate my decision-making process. And generally, it's not that spicy. So, drumroll, please. Thai. Lots of fresh vegetables, great spices, mix of meats and seafoods. There, I finally did it. I think about all the spices and hot sauces that I've never even tried yet. There's a whole world to discover out there. I better get busy, because it's going to be dreadfully bland when I'm dead. Number 80. And this is weird. Triple Aquarius. There I was on Venice Beach in Los Angeles one day in 1988. A man was sitting at a small foldable table with a sign reading, Horoscope, 10 bucks. What the hell? Why not, I thought. He was a nice older guy. He did his thing. But then, out of the blue, he just said, huh, wow. I'm like 18-year-old Michael saying, what, am I going to die next week? And he just says, yeah, no idea. Go talk to the tarot car lady about that. He said that he had never met someone who was so much one star sign before. I didn't have a clue what he was on about, but he explained that while I was Aquarius, I knew that, I was actually a triple Aquarius and all the rising signs and stuff, they were all aligned perfectly. So I was next level Aquarius. He said, yeah, you know, you can have your doubts about astrology, man, and, you know, have some fun paying me 10 bucks, that's okay. But if you're interested, it might be worthwhile reading some of the more credible books about Aquarius. Huh, yeah, okay, whatever, interesting. Off I went. But I was curious, <laughs> and I found some book at the library that detailed what Aquarians were all about. I'll never forget it. It was wild. It felt like looking in a mirror, like reading a biography about myself. A couple of times in the years after that, I paid for horoscopes in other parts of the world the reaction was the same. Huh, wow, you are really Aquarius. Uh, Okay, (laughs) great. But what does it mean? And more importantly, does it even matter? This has always been a conundrum for me in my life. I dig science and facts, which obviously conflicts with buying into astrology. But then again, whenever I read about Aquarius or follow Aquarius meme channels on Instagram, as I do now, It is still a constant sense of, oh my God, this is so me. So, I keep staring at it, and eye-rolling to myself at the same time, and then staring some more. It's so corny, but it's curious and interesting at the same time. So, I just roll with it. It never opened doors to all the other stuff in the same genre, like numerology, tarot cards, and all that. My Chinese horoscope doesn't have the same detailed portrait of me as a person, I recall. According to the Meyer-Briggs personality test, I am ENTP. That feels a little more science but with a grain of salt, of course. But that's as far as I've gone into that world. I'm Triple Aquarius. It's fun. It's kind of cool to read about myself and get that sense of somebody, okay, maybe something, understands me. And now that so many women include their star sign on dating profiles, on dating apps, uh, yeah, so do I. Why not? You got to read the room, don't you? Although putting triple Aquarius out there, yeah, it's really more of a warning than anything else. I like the quirkiness of it. I like having one little door open to this goofy astrology thing and then sticking to the sciencey stuff for the rest. Number 81. Walking. I always have to remind myself to walk more. Here in Copenhagen, my bike is my default. Everything that I need to do is reachable by bike on protected bike lanes. It was 10 years or so ago that I decided to walk a lot more in my neighborhood. Even on short trips around my home, I would go down the back stairs from my apartment, grab my bike, unlock the gate, all just to run quick errands. Nothing wrong with that. But then I started to think about whether or not it was actually quicker than walking. So I timed it. And yeah, it was quicker by bike, but not by much. So then I started to walk, and I'm glad I did. My kids were younger then, and I introduced a policy that in our neighborhood, we would put one foot in front of the other, we're going to the supermarket, we're walking. Oh, they would groan and moan and beg to take the bikes. Right up until they stopped, and it didn't take that long. They got used to it very quickly. We can ride a bike together and talk, sure, but at a pedestrian pace, on the sidewalk, I found that we talked a lot more. We stopped to look in shop windows, notice things around us we hadn't seen before. If I'm visiting a new city, I'll walk around to explore and get a feel for the place. I lived in Paris for a month in February 2023 on an artist's residency. I know the city well, have lived there before, and I had a subscription for the bike share system, but I made a decision to walk almost everywhere for the entire month, even if it was 45 minutes or an hour away. I prefer to undertake journeys that have a destination, an A to B. Once in a while, I push myself to just wander, to be a flaneur, turning left or right on a whim, not knowing where I'll end up. Usually it's a solitary affair and it feels best when it is, but with the right travel companion, you can team up take turns deciding in which direction to head. Or say, you decide for 30 minutes, and then I'll decide for 30 minutes. You can combine it with other fun ideas. You pick a stranger ahead of you, and (laughs) you just follow them. At a distance, of course. You don't want it to be creepy. It can be tourists, and you can observe them observing and exploring a new city. Or it can be locals, and you see what kind of urban patterns the locals have. I like that there's a word for this. Flaneur. The definition in English is, I just looked it up, a habitual loafer, an idle man about town. Hang on, that doesn't sound very positive, but luckily I get the impression that it has a lot more positive connotations these days. It sounds like the most French word ever, flaneur. But hey, look at me learning new stuff. It seems to originate in Scandinavia from the old Norse word flana, which means simply to wander aimlessly. Ha <laughs> ha, there we go, that is a better definition. Considering walking has been the primary transport form of humans for countless millennia, it's not surprising to consider how many synonyms there are for the word stroll, saunter, amble, wend one's way, trudge, plod, hike, tramp, trek, march, stride, troop, step out, wander, ramble, tread, prowl. Foot slog, promenade, roam, trapes, mosey, poodle, yomp, perambulate, foot it, hoof it. And the list goes on. The long walks I did in Paris were much longer than the average distant humans like to walk. There is an interesting pattern in the urban design of old European cities. Let's take Siena, Italy, for example, with its fortifications. They built a city and protected it with walls. But in so many of these cities, it takes no more than 20 or 30 minutes to cross them in any direction. Copenhagen, too, when it was a fortified city. It's as though the maximum length of time that humans can be bothered walking is 30 minutes. That's about 2.5 kilometers. Cities were subconsciously designed for this reality. The same applies to bikes. In Copenhagen, more than 90% of people riding bikes max out on trip lengths of 7 kilometers, which is 30 minutes. Back in the episode about maps, I spoke about a 900-kilometer schlep that I did from the Pyrenees to near Paris, walking 25 to 35 kilometers a day along country roads. It was a hard, physical journey. I slept rough in fields, in the woods, or under bridges. It got easier after a week, but still, Every morning, my body ached. My leg muscles screamed for mercy. But there was nothing else to do than walk. I noticed that it took, on average, five kilometers for me to get into the flow. Five kilometers of my brain and legs protesting. And then suddenly, I just walked and forgot about walking. And my brain started to think about all sorts of other things. It was around that point that some endorphins and dopamine were produced, and I would experience a minor sense of elation. And it happens every time I walk longer distances, on a hiking trip in the Swedish woods down the streets of a foreign city. Again, that happens on bikes as well, after a certain number of kilometers. When I'm on hiking trips with other people, I find that I need to be at the front. When you settle in for a long day of one foot in front of the other, man, I can't seem to fall in behind somebody else. I need a clear path in front of me, even if I'm just staring at the ground and plodding along. Other people are different. It's often easier on a long walk to follow someone. The body of science about the benefits of walking continues to grow. The most simple way we can transport ourselves is so incredibly healthy, physically and mentally. We also know that a person walking down a street will notice around 68 features for every 30 meters they travel. All the things around them, Shop windows, broken paving tiles, architectural details. Motorists, on the other hand, traveling at 50 kilometers per hour down a street can only register six or seven features. I have a meeting in an hour, which is 2.2 kilometers away. And after that, I have four errands to run in my neighborhood. It would be as quick as you like on my bike. (sighs) But now, because of this damn podcast episode, I know I have to walk. And you know what? I'm going to take streets I wouldn't normally take. I'm going to be the flaneur that I've always wanted to be. You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel Anderson. Thanks for being out there.